0: After roughly 40 years of service as a Methodist pastor, Barbara Pfeiffer took the jump into electoral politics last year by successfully running for the 90th District House seat. And the Kirkwood Democrat has a lot to say about what she's seen in the first couple of weeks on the job. Pfeiffer joins us next on the latest episode of Politically Speaking, so let's hit the music. This is the Politically Speaking podcast, the definitive show about Missouri
1: politics. It's a little complicated in Bolivar because there is a Parsons family there. But we also knew that it was important to make sure that that we got to where we needed to go. You know if you walk in a room and you're getting ready to make a decision and everybody in the room looks like you, you need to stop. And right now what happens in the United States Senate is as critical as anywhere else in the country. I really want the state to succeed. We want everybody
0: to uh, know that we're all working together. I just worked hard to try to build my name where I didn't have the money. (laughs) And welcome to Politically Speaking. I'm your host, St. Louis Public Radio political correspondent, Jason Rosenbaum. Joining me as my special guest today, she is the state representative for the 90th State House District. Our special guest is... Barbara Pfeiffer. Thank you very much for joining me today. Um, Before we get into your life story and some of the issues that you'll be tackling, could you just let our listeners know what your district encompasses like what cities in st louis county are in the 90th district
1: well thank you and i just want to say i'm very delighted to be with you today my district is inside of 270 encompasses kirkwood and glendale it encompasses parts of worsen woods and sunset hills and a tiny bit of webster groves as well
0: tell us a little bit about yourself you have a really interesting uh, professional background when it comes to state a state legislator. I think we were joking on the phone that you were like Raphael Warnock before Raphael Warnock got elected, basically. So uh, explain a little bit about yourself.
1: That's right. Um, I have fairly recently retired after more than 40 years as a United Methodist pastor. And uh, what makes that a little bit unusual is pastor for 40 years and being a woman. I started seminary in the late 1970s, graduated in 1980. Um, In my particular denomination, I was the first woman who was ordained who served as the pastor of a local church um, in the judicatory called a conference. So the Eastern half of Missouri. Um, When I began ministry, there really, were literally a handful of us that were finishing seminary. Um, The the trajectory then was typically to work in Christian education in a large suburban church, basically St. Louis. Um, I disqualified myself from doing that very purposely. Um, I was not an education major in my undergraduate degree. And I took only the one obligatory Christian education course that I had. in seminary. So I, I couldn't serve as a Christian educator and the bishop very reluctantly put me into uh, the position of pastoring a local church.
0: From looking at your biography, not only have you been a pastor in places around Missouri, but you also were a pastor in Uruguay as well. Can you talk a little bit about that?
1: Right. Um, I went to Uruguay in 1983 and was there until 1988. Um, I began actually in Argentina uh, in August of 83 doing language study. That was right after the end of the Falkland Islands War. And if anybody's watched The Crown, they will remember the Falkland Islands War or um, learn about it if they were too young to remember it. Um, And part of the fallout of the UK, basically winning that war is that the military regime in Argentina uh, lost all of its credibility. Uh, and I, we were there about 11 months afterwards doing language study in Rosario, Argentina. So I was there for that whole um, political campaign as they were coming out of the, the military dictatorship. And you know, Argentina had about 30,000 people that quote disappeared. They were murdered by the military regime. And then in December of 83, um, my family and I moved to Montevideo, Uruguay, which was at that time still um, under a military regime. And in September of 83, um, there had been a a hunger strike by a Methodist pastor and a a Catholic priest um, that people heard about and they began to, to... to come to the apartment where the hunger strike was taking place. And um, first there were tens, then hundreds and thousands, then tens of thousands of people. And, and that hunger strike, just a couple months before we arrived, then became the impetus to push the military regime for elections. So I was there through those 15 months of um, beginning a political opposition to a military regime. And uh, then the elections uh, in it, it. Those two events, both in Argentina and Uruguay, were the uh, uh, political education of a lifetime.
0: I was going to ask, like, were those particular events what got you interested in Missouri state politics? Or was it just were there other things that spurred your interest into getting involved politically?
1: Uh, well, I think life is complex. And that's a complex question. Certainly. Um, those five years made me reflect very, very differently on, on the nature of democracy than I, my experience would have been if I'd stayed here at home. The other thing is um, the Methodist Church in, in Uruguay is is vanishingly small, but has been critically important on that that uh, road towards democracy. And I, I really had as as colleagues, and, and deep, deep friends, friendships, people who are um, uh, giants in terms of, of their understanding of what it means to be involved as people of faith. Um, the person who had the, took part in this hunger strike had been um, a political prisoner, tortured, and he's a good friend of mine. My best friends, um, who who are also part of of, of the church, um, Eber was was imprisoned, you know, and tortured. And these people never were charged with anything, but they were just held for years. Um, I know what authoritarianism looks like. I know that it thrives on fear. There's always an enemy out there, and there's. A, a, a deep-seated political machine that works to, to gin up fear in order to create a, a situation where people are willing to overthrow the government. And Uruguay had an auto um, coup d'etat, very much like we just saw being tipped a couple of weeks ago. And, and yes, as I... It was getting close to retiring. Um, one of my sons, in particular, starts saying, Mom, you need to run for office, which was not really the first thing I thought about. But I have been so concerned about the political rhetoric, having had the experience of knowing what this can lead to, that I decided a year and three or four months ago that, you know, if I do have a sphere of influence, I need to use it. Um, and so I ran for office.
0: So spoiler alert, you did win a, a election to the Missouri house. Uh, talk a little bit about what that experience was like and, and why you think you won in a seat that has become more democratic in recent years, but still was traditionally Republican if you go back five, 10, 20 years.
1: Yeah, when I first moved to Kirkwood 30 years ago, uh, my husband and I joked that we were the only Democrats in Kirkwood. And and truly, I I didn't know anybody who wasn't. Um, I have a good friend who says I was the first Democrat he ever knew. Uh, And Deb Lavender has just done a fabulous job. And Jane Bogetto, because Jane was also state legislator
0: Yes. Just just for yeah, just for our listeners, Jane Begetto was briefly in the Missouri House after Richard Byrd passed away and there was a special election and uh, she took over that seat. She eventually lost to Rick Stream, though, I think when the next election came out. But continue.
1: Yes. But. Um, you know, Jane. Jane created other possibilities uh, that somebody who's a Democrat could run. Deb worked very, very hard. She's done a fantastic job. And um, you know, COVID turned everything upside down in terms of what running for office, especially first time, looked like in this election cycle. Uh, the opportunities simply to get out and, and get to know people were much more limited than they would usually be. Um, I personally think that Deb publicly endorsing me was absolutely critical for me to win. Um, It was also an odd year for the Republicans in a sense. Uh, Rick Perry had um, decided to run and he ran against me in the primary. And neither one of us had primary opponents, but I had quite a few more votes than he did. I do not know why this happened, but... Um within 10 days of the primary, he dropped out of the race. So then the uh, Republican Party uh, approached somebody else and she ran against me. So there were also, I think, factors within the Republican Party that uh, made a difference for me.
0: Let's talk about your first couple of weeks in the Missouri House, because they've been extremely eventful. You were sworn in on the day of the insurrection in the U.S. Capitol, which you alluded to earlier. Talk a little bit about like what those first days were like, because I think for a lot of first-time legislators, uh, they're going to be days that I don't think they're ever going to forget.
1: Well, certainly the first day was quite surreal. Uh, we were quite literally being sworn in as the insurrectionists were piling into the U.S. Capitol and that melee was going on. So, and at the same time, there were news reports that there had been a breach of the Capitol in Kansas. There were uh, protesters outside of the Missouri State Capitol who, um, so far as I know, were peaceful, but they were certainly part of the same group of people uh, under the, the, their broad banner of, of stop the steal. Uh, so a lot of concerns. And, uh, I, I remember thinking to myself, well, I will never forget the date that I was first sworn in because this really truly is a day that's going to live in infamy for the United States. Um, now there were some real heroes that day as well, but, um, it's just tragic and very concerning, and it was also, in a way, in a very odd way, is confirmation for me. Is like, you know, Barbara, you, you decided to run because this is exactly what you're concerned about, and I will continue to be a voice for the norms of democracy.
0: Can you can you talk a little bit about those some of the some of the per, per, procedural rules that were were voted on? I think in the first week, including the decision not to require mass in the chamber?
1: At the beginning of every two year session, uh, the rules of the road or the rules of engagement are decided upon. Uh, and so there is quite literally the rules that the chamber votes on, and that these are internal for the working of the House of Representatives of the state of Missouri. So this is not law for anybody else, but it is how we will conduct business Uh, There were certain things that were not included that uh, the Democratic Party um, tried to amend. One of which was to follow the guidelines of the CDC and um, about uh, COVID procedures. And it was not a mask mandate in the sense that would say we have to wear masks, the language of the amendment was actually to follow the guidelines for uh, public safety uh, f- by the, that the CDC puts out. And um, the, the vote was um, very much on party lines. Uh, and the Republicans didn't seem to see the need for that. I will say personally, um, It is unnerving to me uh, to be in an atmosphere where probably three quarters of the Republicans will not wear masks. I I frankly don't understand it. It it seems very short-sighted from a pragmatic point of view. Also um, from a faith point of view, and my tradition uh, tends to talk about the golden rule and to behave towards others as you would want people to behave to- towards you. Um, I-, I-, I could go on with other scriptural references as well, but uh, the point being that we are called to be neighbors to each other, and-, and to be a neighbor is to see the needs of the other person and to, to try to take care of them to the best of your ability. And um, instead, uh, the language that I heard on the floor was about um, domination and submission And in fact, I I rose to speak about it a little bit. Um, I I believe uh, one of the legislators said, "Why should we let the CDC subjugate us?" And and it just seems to me so so short-sighted. We we can choose how we how we look at things, and um, you know, just on the face of it, the House of Representatives can decide, well, if we don't like what the CDC is saying, if it's no longer helpful to us, we can change that. Uh, We're not being subjugated. We're simply making a decision that we want to be wise. But evidently, we don't want to be wise, so we're not doing that.
0: What were some other rules that the House did or did not vote to adopt that you found particularly interesting or worth noting?
1: Well, the first one that was interesting but for me not in a good way was the uh, democratic amendment to make clear that the House of Representatives itself will not engage in discriminatory practices and the the Missouri non-discrimination act is something that uh, keeps being introduced as legislation but this is also just for the working of the House of Representatives. And so it's simply a, um, a statement that says that the House of Representatives will not discriminate um, <clears throat> and includes language that protects people who are in the LGBTQTIA community. And um, again, it was um, voted down along party lines. And I, I It's hard to see that. And then finally, Trish Gunby also um, proposed an amendment that we simply call each other by representative rather than the lady or the gentleman. And her point being that, um, first of all, not everybody particularly wants to be called lady or gentleman. I don't particularly like being called lady, but also there will, Come a day, and probably sooner than some people realize, where we will have people who don't have a non, uh, don't, who have a non-binary um, identity or are trans, and so those kinds of labeling by gender um, do not help people, and there's no real reason for it. Um, It it makes me feel like, I don't know, foghorn leghorn back in the day. Um, It's just kind of some weird 19th century language that I, I, I hope we've changed, but evidently
0: not that much. We'll be right back after this quick break with State Representative Barbara Pfeiffer. And we're back on Politically Speaking with State Representative Barbara Pfeiffer. She is a Democrat from Kirkwood. I want to talk about another thing that happened, I think, in your second week in office, and that you were the only Democrat to vote on an amendment to expel one of your Democratic colleagues, State Representative Wiley Price. And we have a lot more information about why Representative Price was censured and almost expelled. It involves an investigation into whether he had sex with an intern and his conduct that occurred during that investigation. That's the best way I can sum it up. Um, Why did you decide to expel him? Uh,
1: I I do want to say that I think people sometimes don't understand that things happen pretty fast on the floor. And so... uh, um, I, I keep getting calls or, or letters about, you know, you, you made this particular stand. I, everybody had to make a decision fairly quickly. Um, and censure is pretty weighty. Uh, I think a lot of people don't realize that. And in fact, um, at least on the floor, someone said that there's only been one expulsion in the 200 years of Missouri State Legislature. So you need to know that's a pretty high standard. Um, When we went into the session, the the issue on the floor was censure. And then there was this uh, proposed amendment to expel. Um, I take very seriously the will of the people in a district. If you you vote to expel, you're basically nullifying the the representation of people in that district. But as I thought about it, there, there were several factors. Uh, the question of whether or not Representative Price had a sexual relationship with the intern, in essence was it was off the table for me because both Representative Price and the intern said that they did not have a sexual relationship. I, I, I wasn't there, I don't know, I can't make a decision about that. But we do have very, Uh, credible evidence that um, he then harassed and intimidated his legislator assistant and uh, lied to the investigator and then to the ethics committee. Um, I think the tipping point for me was really sitting and thinking about what it means for a legislator to threaten and intimidate a staff person uh, that that person supervises. Uh, I have a a responsibility to the people in my district. I also have a responsibility to be a voice for people who um, are marginalized, that that's part of who I am. I'm an ordained pastor. I will always have that responsibility. Um, and in this situation, staff members are marginal. They, they don't have the power that representatives do and Fairly recently, the House of Representatives has has now made it part of the internal rules that legislator assistants are mandated reporters, which they should be. But if you have a system where a mandated reporter can be threatened, harassed, intimidated, and fired for doing her duty, then we have situations totally unworkable. So I I feel that a a person who harasses and intimidates uh, people, who uh, they are have supervisory power over, are dangerous. And that's why I voted to expel.
0: Now, I, did, I was flipping back between the House floor and the U.S. House floor, because this was happening on the same day that President Trump was impeached. So, admittingly, I did not watch the entire House debate, but I did see Representative Price make a lengthy statement where he denied a lot of the allegations against him, but did admit, and I'm going to read a quote here, that he did make false statements to the investigators. And I'm just reading this quote verbatim. Uh, Just the smoke of such allegations have cost lives. Having this historical understanding of the allegations brought against me, I panicked and denied my dealings or actions in regard to this situation. I wanted nothing to do with it, and for that, I was wrong. And this is a paraphrase from my colleague uh, Jacqueline Driscoll's story. Price claimed there were discrepancies in the report and details omitted. He apologized to his friends and colleagues for even putting us in this position, and he accepted the censure. There was also another article, which you were quoted in the Post-Dispatch, featuring Republican uh, Bill Cristofanelli, who explained why he voted for censure but not expulsion, saying that there just wasn't enough time for him to make a decision on expulsion without like a lot more proceedings than what was brought forward. So I know that's a lot of information to dump on you to respond to, but like, what did you make of representative prices lengthy statement? And what did you make of some of your colleagues who said center was okay, but we needed more time and more consideration before we talked about expulsion.
1: Okay. I I don't want to speak for any other legislators. Uh, However, when the news broke you know, and the Democratic caucus had a discussion about it. And we said he will no longer caucus with us. I, I made it my business in December to find the ethics report, to read all eight pages of it. Uh, the day before on Tuesday, when I knew we were going to be doing, dealing with this on Wednesday, I downloaded it. I went through it again. I underlined everything that I thought was important and I thought about it. So even though expulsion wasn't on the table, I did feel prepared to make a decision. Um, I, I really, I, I don't wanna parse what Representative Price said. I used the information on the ethics report. I, that's all I have. I was not in the room. It was a bipartisan report. There were five Republicans and five Democrats. I have to trust their findings. So, you know, the um, amendment to expel failed and I voted for censure. And I'm, I feel at peace about that vote. Uh, Censure is not a light thing. It's, it's, it's a, it's pretty substantial as a matter of fact. In effect, most people resign rather than deal with the censure.
0: I want to shift gears to some of your general policy goals and expectations. Uh, from talking with you before uh, we press record, you're going to be on several committees dealing with higher education, public safety, and 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 an administrative-like committee that could deal with like feral hogs. Uh, give me some of your your general expectations and and goals through serving on these committees. Um, I want
1: to uh, put feral hogs aside just for a moment. Uh, although that is important on certain parts of our, our state, uh, I am going to be serving on, as you said, higher education, which is very exciting to me. Merrimack Community College is about one mile from my house. It's squarely in my district. Uh, Merrimack is a fabulous community college. We have a wonderful system in the St. Louis area. and. Um, Really, I think Missouri, that's one of the shining lights in Missouri. We make higher education available across the state and we need to continue to do that. I also have a personal interest um, in this uh, committee. My father was a professor for many, many years at the University of Missouri Columbia. I went through high school there. Uh, Dad was also involved with the extension division. So I'm very aware of the kind of outreach that the university system does. Uh, through the extension division and and it's fabulous. I wanna continue to make sure that we uh, are strong in our higher education in Missouri. Uh, Public safety, uh, it's a little unclear to me exactly what we will be doing. The Speaker of the House also has a special committee. So we'll be divvying up responsibilities. I um, am concerned about the level of training that we have in the state. Uh, we need to have standards that are appropriate for 21st century policing and good training. I absolutely believe people want to do the best job that they can and we need to give them the resources to do that. We also need to address issues of st- systemic racism within policing. I was very glad to see the statement from Governor Parson this fall about that and um, that kind of recognition is important, and finally, uh, administrative oversight. Evidently, it uh, we look over just about anything that uh, the House uh, Speaker wants us to. Uh, we could deal with uh, defining murder or defining how we take care of feral hogs. Uh, one of the job qualifications for being a representative is being willing to dig in and learn, uh, about a variety of things. I love to do that.
0: And so that's what I'll do. What do you think the legislature can do to reduce the gap in trust that we've seen throughout the last six or seven years between police in the St. Louis area and the African-American community?
1: Conversation is a start, but then action is really needed. Uh, the Justice Department has the eight can't wait uh, procedures. Uh, police departments need to, to be committed to implementing those. It really starts at the top. And, you know, if you have a wink of the eye and you just say the words, but you don't do the hard work, nothing's gonna change. Um, it, you know, it's so simple, Jason, and it's so hard. When Once we really say we are all part of this American democracy and everybody has both rights and duties and responsibilities, things will begin to change. But until people really believe that they are part of this American democracy, they're not going to be invested in it. And and there's going to be distrust, and 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 that is a very very complicated issue. I was listening to amazingly enough NPR yesterday, and um, the woman that is uh, in charge of the 1619 uh, whole thrust said something that made me. I've been pondering about it. It's made me think about democracy differently. She she said, you know, we talk about the founding fathers as if that were 250 years ago, but American democracy is actually only about 50 years old because if you're looking at actual full inclusion of voting rights and, you know, our founding mothers and fathers include people who are still alive. And she's absolutely right. And I feel a little foolish that I've never really thought of it in that way. We talk about civil rights, but we're actually talking about what democracy means. And I believe that we are still working on becoming a functioning democracy here in Missouri. Uh, That includes people in the LGBTQIA community as well. Um, I'm very concerned about the trajectory of Missouri in a number of ways. And we seem to be saying we want to be stuck in the 1950s and the 1960s. And if we do that, we're going to become poorer and older and more white and less healthy and less educated. And we're in a downward cycle. But we can change it.
0: Well, Representative, I want to just thank you very much for joining me on this episode of Politically Speaking. For all of our stories, you can go to stlpublicradio.org. You can follow me on Twitter at Jay Rosenbaum. Uh, Representative, how could people get a hold of you either through your official channels or, or via social media or otherwise?
1: Uh, the Missouri House of Representatives has a website. It's um, house.mo.gov. And... Um, Every representative has an email through that, and mine is barbara.pfeiffer at house.mo.gov. I'm on Facebook, and my phone number is there. Uh, I have my personal phone number up. If anybody wants to get a hold of me, they can.
0: Thank you very much, and until next time, so long.